welcome. Welcome back to Advent. And uh, I think Jordan and Cassie are in the room. Those are the extraordinaires that came up with a nice little bumper that prefaces our sermon today. Hey, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke is in the New Testament, third book in the New Testament. That's going to be three quarters away through your Bible um, towards the right side. If you are going to use our pew Bible, in fact, we uh, in the middle aisle of seats, there should be a little couple stacks of Bibles there. We use the ESV here at the transit. And uh, if you want to turn to Luke, it's going to be on 556, 556. Um, those Bibles are there for you to use. But more importantly, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you that as a gift and you can take it with you today and read it. We're going to be uh, in Luke chapter two, verses one through seven, perhaps a familiar section of scripture. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and uh, we're going to read aloud together. So here we go. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we are privileged to be together today, gathered as your church, and um, we're grateful for that. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study this sometimes uh, familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, we hear it every Christmas. Many of us read it and some of us even study it to see what it means. So, Lord, today I pray that you would give us, breathe new life into it and show us something that we have yet to see before. Especially as we talk about humility today, Lord God, I pray that you would um, bring that, uh, that topic to the surface and help us to deal with uh, our lack of humility in our own hearts. Today, Lord, we are reminded that all around us in this, um, in this area of Kingstown and Alexandria, there are churches like us meeting, and we pray that you would meet with them by your Holy Spirit, God, that, you would, that your word would go forth, that your gospel would be presented, that people would uh, come to meet Jesus, and that you would save and change people in the hearing of your word today. We pray that same thing for us. God, give us ears to hear today what the Spirit of God is saying to us and to your church. Give us uh, eyes to see what these words on this page of inspired writing would have for our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. 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 All right. Today, um, we are in week two of our observance of Advent. And our observance of Advent introduces us today to, to three characters or scenes within Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The first is a ruler named Caesar. The second sort of a scene is an insignificant town called Bethlehem. And the third is a baby in a manger. And um, these, these will be familiar to you. 
Before we get there, though, I want to preface all my comments by saying that there is there are two threads that run through all of the Bible. And those two threads are ideas of promise and fulfillment. We could say that much of the Old Testament is a bunch of promises or we could say prophecies of God being in the midst of his people, of God coming, of him sending a Messiah to save, to be with us, but also to save us. And we see the fulfillment of those promises and prophecies happen in the New Testament through the person and the work of Jesus. And it's interesting how this sovereign God who rules over everything in the Old Testament as he promises and prophesies, he he sometimes gives us a glimpse of things hundreds and even thousands of years before they are actually fulfilled in the, the present time. I mentioned, you know, we could go to several different places and, and talk about the promises and prophecies of God. I'll mention just two as we get going, and these both are pertinent to our study of Luke 2 today. Last week we studied Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Um, written uh, roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. And God says through the prophet Isaiah these words, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so God is saying the answer to the human sin problem is, is someone named Emmanuel. Let me briefly describe the word sin, though. Sin is everything that is wrong with our world. Sin is the reason for wars and rumors of wars. Sin is the reason why we have pain and sickness that's incurable. Pain, sin is the, the reason why we have death in the world. Sin is not just out here, though. Sin is actually in, in here. It's in you. Sin is the reason why you want your way and don't want to let someone else have their way. Sin is the reason why your baby cries. It is. Sin is the reason why uh, sin is the reason why you had that argument with your spouse or your significant other one or two or maybe days ago, or maybe this this morning as you were coming to church. That's what sin is. And a, a simple definition, of course, would be sin is uh, iniquity. It's our waywardness. It's those ways that we see God's standard, but don't want to meet meet that standard. We can't in and of ourselves. And so God prophesied through Isaiah 700 years before he would send someone to take care of our sin problem, that he that he would do that through someone called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a title. Okay, more than the title, it's the nature of the person that he sent. It means God with us. And of course, um, Emmanuel, we learned last week in Matthew, is Jesus come in the flesh. And so God is breaking into human history through Emmanuel. God, who is the creator, becomes a part of his creation. He comes to visit the planet that he created. He comes to be a part of this people that he fashioned with his own hands. Can you fathom that? How will we know who Emmanuel will be? The text tells us um, the answer is a virgin will give birth to a male son. And they even gave him a name. That's the first prophecy. The second prophecy is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And Micah says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin 
is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah was an interesting prophet. He didn't call himself a prophet. He basically said, um, I'm Micah from Moresheth. He described himself as a person who is from a particular area. But we know because of the power of the things that he said and many of them coming to pass that he was empowered by God to be a prophet. And right in the middle of this little book in the Old Testament, um, he says these great words that pinpoints the exact location where the ruler would come, a ruler of Israel who, in these words, comes from ancient of days. The, the Hebrew literal rendering there is he comes from eternity past, and he's pointing, of course, to the birth of Jesus. And so from these and other promises, the expectation and the anticipation was a Savior's coming, a deliverer, a redeemer, really a hero. He's coming to be in our midst. He'll be God amongst us, Emmanuel. He'll be born of a virgin. It'll be a male son, and he'll, bo- he'll be born in a little insignificant town called Bethlehem. And everyone was anticipating and waiting for this moment to happen. At least everyone in Israel was waiting. They were waiting for this miracle of God visiting them and solving all their problems. And that really is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in this passage that we just read. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And so what I what I want to pull out for you in these first uh, seven verses here are what I think are three significant observations that you should have in regards to the birth of Jesus as Luke um, writes them for us. Now, Luke is a is a prolific, uh, prolific writer. He's a doctor. We know from the book of Acts that Luke traveled around with the Apostle Paul, saw firsthand many of the uh, the miracles and the 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 starting of the early church. And Luke, and if we would turn the, the page and just read a couple words from, from Luke as he introduces his gospel, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning who are, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for uh, some time past, to write an orderly account For you, most excellent Theophilus, he was writing to the benefactor of uh, the one who paid him to go and research all these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wanted not only Theophilus, but he wanted us, uh, the recipients of his word years uh, in the future, to, to have his eyewitness account. I mean, he went back and talked to the people who actually saw these things happen. I believe Luke actually interview Mary and read and some of the reasons why we know what happened in this little town of Bethlehem in a a stable of a a baby being born is because he talked to some of the people that were there. I can't prove that, but I really do believe that. And I think many scholars who write about these things would uh, corroborate that as well. So the first thing I want to look at is this ruler named Caesar, a ruler named Caesar. We should note the particular attention that Luke gives to the historical context of Jesus' birth. This would be akin to us writing a book that at some point becomes famous because of the things that are in it, where we are talking about things that are to come or that have happened, and those things become um, notorious. And we say, um, in the time where 
uh, Barack Hussein Obama was president of the United States and his platform that he ran during his first term was we can change. This is akin to what Luke is writing here in this passage. He's ta- as he talks about Caesar, Augustus Caesar was ruling. He had a subordinate ruler named Quirinius who really was just executing all of all of his rule in this particular land called called Rome. Luke tells us in verse one that it was during a time that the decree had gone out to all the world from Caesar Augustus. You know, Caesar was one of the most important people in these times prior to Jesus hitting the scene. Absolutely most important because of who he was, but more importantly, because of the things that he did when he ruled. Caesar ruled for 45 years from about 30 A.D. to 14 B.C., He had three names. He had a personal name, Octavius. He had a family name, Caesar. He actually was an adopted, adopted into the Caesar household and then given the opportunity to rule. And his official name was Augustus, which surprisingly means son of God, son of God. Augustus ruled. um, He did much for Rome. He did much good for Rome. He was the one that we can attribute uh, the building up and the beautification of all that was Rome. Remember Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, and how uh, you see the Colosseums and all these buildings and just the the stone um, Gothic artwork that was uh, ancient Rome. Um, He set up a centralized government in Rome. He's the one that strengthened their military and that ushered in uh, that famous period that we call Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Um, I would tell you not all that Caesar Augustus did for Rome was good, however. At some point, Caesar became so powerful, so influential that even his own Senate and the people that were his subjects started to worship him. Caesar was called not just entitled son of God, but he acted as though he were God, as he were divine amongst the people. And they treated him that way. And I would tell you, he wasn't as bad as he could have been in terms of what we think of when we think of evil and dictators. He did much good for Rome. And what he did for Rome infiltrated into all of the the world, the modern world at that time. However, he, um, anytime you, um, you, uh, submit yourself to being called a deity, it means trouble, not only for you, but for those who are serving you. In verse two and three, uh, in the midst of consolidating his empire, Caesar Augustus needed to conduct a census so that he could introduce a widespread taxation program. Now, there's only two reasons why a ruler like that would tax, would, would have a census, would have his people registered so they would be known. Okay, we have censuses like these in our country as well. Um, and I'm not saying this is why we do it, but it's, it's part of the reason why we do it. The first is wealth. Okay, if you know how many people you can count, you know how much money you can extract from those people. The second would be power. Okay, if Caesar knows how many male citizens he has, he knows who he can call up in the event he needs to go to war against those who oppose him. And that's this is really what he's doing. He's having his people register so he can tax them and so that he can know he can boast about how much power he has based upon the number of citizens that he can go take to war. Um, to make this registration easier to implement, um, 
what he does is he has people go back to their place of birth, their place of origin. And that leads us to this town called Bethlehem. So in verse four and five, one of the one of those who had to register was a carpenter from Nazareth named Joseph. Joseph is of the family line of David. He has royal blood in his veins, some 40 generations removed. David is his great, 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 40 times over grandfather. We learn in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 that David, you know, David, that insignificant little boy born as the last of the least, really, of his uh, line of brothers. When Samuel came to him, he's like, is, no, is there nobody else that we can um, that I can anoint to be king? And then he sees David and he's like, well, God, surely this isn't the guy that you want me to anoint and, and call king. This is the town that um, Joseph is being called to go back to. He has to go back because that would be where his kin and his clan would originate from. And it's interesting. We don't know a lot about Joseph and his life, but Joseph was a carpenter. We learned that from the Gospels. And so think about a person in our day that you know that has their profession as a carpenter. They've got strong, um, agile, probably work well with their hands. Joseph, as a carpenter, probably has calloused hands. He's a man who is just trying to earn a decent living. He's not necessarily affluent because he's a carpenter, but he's not necessarily poor. Don't read in the text that because they had they birthed a baby in a stable that they're necessarily poor. There's a lot of people in Bethlehem and everything was I mean, it's like going to a town where the Super Bowl is going to be. I mean, all the hotels are going to be bought up. Seriously. And this is the case here in Bethlehem. Um, Joseph was a guy probably just trying to earn an honest living, um, and he wants to marry the girl of his dreams. That, that girl has to happen to be Mary, and uh, I don't know, lo and behold, she's pregnant. She's pregnant, and it's not by him. And that would have caused a world of difficulty for their world. She's pregnant as a fulfillment of prophecy by a miracle of God from the Holy Spirit, we learn from Matthew 1. You know, Joseph and Mary are completely antithetical to this picture that we have of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is rich and affluent and powerful. He's a ruler. He has much. There's nothing that he wants for. And the very opposite of that is this picture of this humble couple. They possibly don't have a lot. They're young. They um, they are different than him in every kind of of way. And this is, I think, the picture that Luke wants to give us as we see the story unfolding. You know, Joseph and Mary were like teenagers. And I don't want you to think teenagers in the terms of um, 18, 19, post high, post high school kind of teenagers. They were teenagers in the likes of middle school, early high school. You could be betrothed to someone at the age of 12, married at 13. And this likely is the case, the uh, scholars tell us, um, for Joseph and, and Mary, you know, Mary would have been despised in this predicament that she's in. No one in this society would have looked on her and thought well of her. The same thing with Joseph. They would have thought he was a fool. They would have thought he was an imbecile for hanging on to this young girl who somehow got pregnant um, and didn't want to admit to it. But we should take from this that Joseph and Mary loved God, worshiped God, served God, and they accepted his plight for them. He, they accepted his call for them to bear the burden of what people thought 
and to carry this baby and to see him born forth. They believed in the God that they served so much that they believed the baby that was born. I mean, they knew it was true. It was their reality. Joseph and Mary, along the way, um, you know, they had 90 miles to travel all the way to Bethlehem. It was an uphill road. Um, It would have been rough travel. And we don't know how far along Mary was in this pregnancy, but thank God she didn't have the baby along the route. You know, except for the fact that the ancient king of Israel was born there. uh, Note that Luke calls this the city of David. That term is only used for Jerusalem or Zion, the place, you know, the place of God's dwelling. But Luke attributes the city of David, that title to this little insignificant town called Bethlehem, because Jesus is going to be born here. Except for that fact, Bethlehem was small and insignificant in almost every possible way. Yet God would see fit to choose this unassuming couple and bring them to this little town and thrust upon them this unbelievable circumstance and bring them to this insignificant town and bring forth the promise of God for the world. God's ways are not our ways. And then that brings us to the last part of this text, verse six and seven, we read about the baby in a manger, the baby in a manger. You know, we read that Mary and Joseph make this journey. Mary doesn't have birth along the way, despite all the bumps in the road. The whole city is filled with people, so there's no place that they can go. A lot of times in cities like Bethlehem, they would have not only inns, public shelters where people could go to. Think of a room like this, probably a third of the size, and people just laying anywhere. They weren't like hotels with individual rooms. And then there would be places outside of that, caves, stables where they could sit their animals. This is the kind of environment they would have gone to. And as the text tells us, because there's no room, they end up in a stable. Okay, And Mary gives birth there. And as they give birth, There's no bassinet. There's no pretty room all colored up with the borders all around it. And and one of those little circular things playing with music. There's none of that. Okay, so they lay the baby in a manger. Think of that. Think of um, horse trough. If you've ever seen one of those, they lay him in a place where the animals would eat and drink out of. He's wrapped up in clothes to make his keep his limbs straight and all that as we do today. You know, in that day, it was common for stables to be in caves. And although pregnancy and giving birth doesn't require a a, a sterile environment, this place would have stunk. They would have had the wafting fumes of of horse or sheep or a goat dung um, in the air, smelling it as she was giving birth, pushing Jesus out. There would have been dung on the floor. Perhaps she was lying in it. I mean, this is no place to give birth. This is no place for a baby to be born. Yet this is what God does. Mary likely experienced excruciating pain. There was no medical care. We don't even know if she had a midwife. Who in the world delivered this baby? Have you thought about that? Luke doesn't give us the details. Maybe God doesn't want us to know. But she experienced the the full brunt of pain in this cave, giving birth to Jesus. And once she does, they lay him in this trough where the animals eat and drink. God's ways are not our ways. You know, these are the historical facts. These are the historical facts about Jesus being born. These aren't all the facts. Next week, we're going to look at verses 8 
through 20, which gives us the reaction of Jesus being born. The shepherds coming, the angels singing, uh, there being a joyful time at the celebration of the Christ child born. And my guess is that most of you have heard this story somehow in your life. Either you've opened the Bible and read it, perhaps you've heard it sung in song. We sang the, uh, the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Perhaps you've seen the Peanuts cartoon. And Linus stands, you know, Charlie Brown's like, what is Christmas all about anyway? He's got that funky looking Christmas tree. And Linus walks over with his blanket, thumb in his mouth. And he's like, Charlie Brown, I'll tell you what the real meaning of Christmas is. And he spouts off verbatim from his head with these same words from Luke chapter 2. Perhaps you have heard these words before, but I would tell you, hearing the words and knowing the story isn't, isn't good enough. Okay, we can know something and that not do anything to change us on the inside. We have to do something with what we know. And my contention is that as important as these words are, they aren't beneficial to you unless you go to the next step and ask, what in the world is God doing? What is he doing in in these words that Luke has written? What is he saying to me? What does he want me to know? And how do I deal with it? And so let's ask that of ourselves. The first thing I want you to ask yourself what does God tell us? About, what does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about God? I'm going to give you three points. Two of them are theo- theological, so bear with me. The other is biographical. Okay, well, sort of biographical. Firstly, um, you know, God's, God is sovereign, and you guys hear me stand up here every week and say something about God's sovereignty. But as I turn every page of the Bible, I I just see it. It jumps off the page at me. God is in charge. He's in charge of the cosmos. He's in charge of this world that he had that has, has it, that has his handprint on it. And he's in charge of my life. And I would tell you, the day that you agree with that, life will go better for you. God is is sovereign. Verse six says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. I see a double meaning here, and hopefully, hopefully you see it too. And the double meaning is in these words, the time came. The time came for Mary not only to give birth, but God saw fit in the prophecies of Isaiah and Michael, Micah to neatly put all of these intricate details together and fulfill them in this insignificant town with an unassuming couple in the most humble means that he could in in a stable, in a cave, amongst the dung of, of the animals. I mean, why would God do that? This is exactly as God foretold it would happen. It happens like that. You know, and amongst all the characters and the scenes that Luke gives us, the most important character, the most important thing that we should read into these words, it's not Caesar, it's not Bethlehem, it actually isn't the baby in the manger. It's God himself. God is sovereign. He's superintending. He is orchestrating these events to bring them about just as he promised that he would. And that should awe us. The only reason historically why Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of this powerful imperial decree of Caesar Augustus saying, I need everyone to come back to Bethlehem to register so I can tax you and know how many people I have and be that more powerful. But I would tell you, behind the facade of Caesar telling all these people to go to your hometown and get registered is the all-powerful, omnipotent, sovereign creator God that is using Caesar like a puppet and fulfilling his plan for his world. 
R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite theologians, authors, pastors, and he says this about this particular text. He says, Caesar Augustus, in the, in the final analysis, was but a pawn in the hands of the Lord God omnipotent. The prophet Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And when it was God's time, when God decided that now I want all that I've said through these people to come to pass, God made it happen. He made all those intricate, small details come together right there as Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, just as he said it would. You know, Paul in Galatians 4, reflecting back on this same passage, Luke 2, says this, Luke 4, uh, excuse me, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This, this verse is saying a lot. I'm not going to preach Galatians 4. But among the things that Paul is reflecting on here, he's telling us that this reveals to us God's providence and his sovereignty. God's sovereignty, that he rules over everything, nations, people, your life, okay? You're not necessarily like a puppet on a string and he's controlling your every decision and your every action. But God is superintending over us to bring about his plan for our world and I would say your life. And he does that here. God is bringing forth his plan for his kingdoms to prove that he is God above all. And in this scenario of Luke chapter 2, he is bringing about this, this plan that Jesus, this baby in a manger, would be Lord of all. All right, that's the first thing. The second theological point would be the incarnation. That God, that God incarnated himself. That's a big word, incarnation. It simply means, in Latin, in flesh. Okay? It means in flesh. This is the Christian doctrine that God, who is spirit, took upon himself human flesh, and came as a human being. He came as the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this comes from John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, uh, word was, uh, the word was with God, and the Word was God. The word, uh, word in Greek is logos, okay? Jesus... Uh, um, John is talking about Jesus, okay? He's giving a new term to Jesus, saying that he is, he is the reality of God amongst you. And then when we sh- uh, shoot down to verse 14, he says, This word, who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and the truth. Obviously, he's personifying word, giving him uh, giving us a picture that this entity was with God from eternity past and he's come into our present being absolutely right now. And guess what? It's not just a word. It's God himself. It's Jesus. OK, we don't actually hear John say the word Jesus until verse 17 in this passage. And so um, from John chapter one, verse one and verse 14 comes this idea of God in flesh, the one who uh, was with God in the beginning, who was face to face with him in all of eternity, ruling over the cosmos with him, there with him when he created the very world that we live, breathe and exist in was Jesus. And he became in flesh. Incarnation means God entered into human history. The creator in a creation, God, who was spiritual, took upon himself to take on 
flesh, which is just a crazy idea. That's what these verses mean. The third idea, I give you two theological ideas. The second, the third one is biographical, biographical about God. And that um, the idea is God is humble. OK, we're, we're in the second week of Advent and our theme here is really humility. Through Bethlehem, through the circumstances of Jesus' birth, we see a God who is humble. You know, this word doesn't appear in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Did you see the word humility? But if you read the words, you can't help but just get that theme jumping out at you and making you do something with it. We have to deal with these events of Jesus' birth from the perspective of the God that we that we know is in charge of all that we know of the world is also a very humble God. And, you know, just think about it. Would you do it this way? If you were God, had the power to make your own world, make it perfect, put people in it. And then those those crazy people rebelled on you. I mean, would you go and save them in this way by becoming by becoming one of them and coming in the lowly way that Jesus came? Most of you would say, absolutely not. I, in fact, all of you would say that. There's no way that this plan laid out in the Bible would be our plan. And in the very same way that we see Luke giving us the observance of Caesar and the scene at Bethlehem, and this baby in a man- manger, we, we see the humility of God. First in Caesar, you know, there's this sharp contrast between who Augustus posed himself to be and who, who Jesus actually is. Caesar was in every possible way. He was the all time ruler of the current world. And then Jesus sneaks in in an insignificant way in this insignificant town. And he's born in the lowliest, most humble of ways. And he's born not to be insignificant, but he will become a ruler much greater than any ruler that has ever graced the, the, the ground of this planet that we live on. Second would be Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem was as an insignificant village. And to fathom that God would have Jesus born in, in Smallville, so to speak, that he would put him in this little environment that had nothing good going about it. But out of Bethlehem would come the most significant person that has ever existed in our history. You know, in a sense, Bethlehem was a place of shame for Jesus' family. Jesus was going from Nazareth back to his hometown amongst his kin and his clan. And there would have been, although we don't read it in the text, there would have been people in Bethlehem that knew who Joseph was. And so he's coming back with this pregnant woman that he's betrothed to but not married to. And that would have been shame for Joseph and for, and for his family. Yet, this same scene would produce a man who would grow up and he would go pin himself to a cross to die in our place for our sin. And he would carry our shame on that cross to death. Lastly, we we see this this crazy scene of a baby born in a manger. Um, That manger scene is is the scandal of the story. And it really shows God's uh, his humility um, and his willingness to humble himself for those people like us that that if you can believe this, that he loves. And this is what gets me. God not only allowed this to happen, but he orchestrated it. I mean, again, God's ways are not our ways. This would not be my plan for sending um, sending a savior into the world to save those who can't save themselves. Yet it's God's 
It's God's plan. A manger is no place for a baby to be born, let alone the Son of God, but this is God's plan. You know, we can only look at the humility of God on display here in this story and shake our heads and say, God's ways are not our ways. So we ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does this tell us about God? I think we also have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for, for me personally? I've got three more things for you. We could say a lot of things. So these aren't, I'm not exhausting a whole list of stuff. I'm just rounding out what I think um, is more truthful to the pastor. The first is, Jesus is like us. Jesus is like us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Uh, What is is Jesus doing here? The, The Hebrew writer is telling us that Jesus sympathizes with us. One that sympathizes with someone else is, I mean, you can understand the, their emotion. You understand their feelings. I mean, you can, like, connect with what they're going through, whatever, whatever it is. And this passage here is saying that Jesus does that for us. Jesus was born into human flesh like us. He suffered and hurt like us. He, he was a person, no less than you are. He, he, he grew up like his dad. He was a carpenter. There was there there had to have been opportunities where Jesus, with whatever they used as a hammer, struck his hand and wanted that wanted to say bad words. There, there had to have been opportunities for that to happen. Jesus not only suffered just from the physical life of living in our bodies, but we know that he got tired. He needed water. He needed food. He he got thirsty. He suffered just like us. He experienced the ups and downs of human emotions. He cried when Lazarus was born. He was emotionally joyful when he got to hug and be around kids. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted like us. So when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when life gets hard, the writer of Hebrews says you can call out to Jesus. You can Count on Jesus because he sympathizes with you. He's lived life much like you in every way. He is like you. We have a God, unlike other concepts of God, who has walked in our shoes. He's walked our roads, ate our food, lived in our skin. He knows what it is to be us. It's encouraging to know that Jesus is like us. But the second thing is, thank God Jesus is not like us. We should be encouraged that Jesus is not like us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27 says this. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27 continues. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. Uh, How is Jesus different than us? He never sinned. Jesus experienced life like we did on earth, suffering, experiencing the highs and lows of emotions, all that we could experience on life as a human being, yet Jesus did not sin. Jesus said, live the life that we should have lived, a perfect life. And he died the death that we deserve to die. We all deserve to, to receive God's wrath because we're sinful people. We want life like we want it, yet 
Jesus took that in himself. He was not only our high priest, he was our sacrifice, dying in our place on the cross. And if we put our faith and our trust in him, we have the encouragement that he's not like us. He's not sinful, and therefore he can satisfy God's wrath in our place for our sin. Thirdly, Jesus came to make us like him. This is my last point. Jesus came to make us like him. You know, Jesus is like us in that he was fully human. He's unlike us that he didn't sin. And Jesus came to earth as a baby born in a humble manger, identifying with us in every way that he might save us to make us exactly like him. Well, not exactly. We can't be divine. But one day we'll be like him because we'll see him, the writer says, as he is. You know, Jesus can only begin the process of making us like him, however, when we respond, when we present, when we repent of our sin, when we ask him to forgive us. And scripture says once we've done that, we have to choose to follow him. And Jesus responds. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And that Holy Spirit on a daily basis helps us to be more like Jesus. Of the many historical facts that Luke presents, uh, I think one of the greatest implications in this idea of, of Advent and humility is Jesus reminds, Jesus reminds us that God is humble. Can you see it in these words? Can you see it in the things that we've talked about so far? God is humble. God is humble in his birth. He's humble in his life. He's humble in the suffering and the circumstances of his death on the cross. And when we look at the unusual story and shake our heads saying God's ways are not our ways, we are reminded that we are not. We're not what? We're not humble. None of you in this room. If you compare yourself to Jesus, you are not humble. All right, go ahead and do whatever you got to do to receive that. You're not humble. You know, we're, we're all made, motivated by the, the, um, the curse of self. We're motiva- motivated by self-interest, which says life revolves around me. Uh, I'm only in, I'm, I've got a list of my favorite people in the whole wide world, and my name's at the top of it. And all, all of you me included. We've got that same list and all of our names are at the top of our own list. We are motivated by self-indulgence. That means you tell yourself this all the time. I need this and I need that. And you do whatever you can to satisfy the appetites of your life, whether it's buying something or eating something or sexual intimacy. We are people that are motivated by self-indulgence. We're motivated by self-sufficiency. That means we're confident. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him in a manger. I don't need him growing up on a cross. I don't need him dying and and resurrecting for me. I'm confident in my own abilities. If I need something, I'm going to do it myself. That that really is how we think oftentimes. We're motivated by self-importance. I'm the only one that matters. We're motivated by self-ambition. And all this leads to the chief of all motivations, self-glorification. We want to be God. We have built the throne. We've had a crown made and we're going to sit on the throne, be God over our own lives, put that crown on and rule over all that's you and yours. And that really is the the lot of our life. You know, the root of all these is pride. The root of all those is pride. And there is no sin in the world that um, that is as bad as as pride. Pride is the root of every sin that you will commit in your life. And pride goes way back. 
Pride was the root of the first sin, not Adam and Eve in the garden. Lucifer, as Ezekiel tells us, when he's a beautiful angel, has music in his wings, and he decides that he wants to be God, and God casts him to earth. Pride is the result of Adam and Eve being deceived in the garden. Pride is the result of every sin that you commit in your life. And that pride in us reminds us that Jesus came in the most humble way to save us from that sin of all sins. We aren't humble. Jesus says, I'll close with this. You know, how should we respond? How should we respond? And I've got two words for you. And those two words are these. We worship. We worship. Worship is more than singing. Worship is our adoration. It's our thankfulness. It's our prayer. It's living a life, as Romans 12 tells us. That is uh, an offer of worship unto God in everything that we do. We have the opportunity to, to read these words and, and to theologically know that God is superintending over everything that, that he promised and that he fulfilled. And then we learn that, that Jesus is, is the fulfillment of all of this. And then we ask ourselves, what does this mean for me? It, it means that God is humble. And to, for, in order for me to be humble like him, I've got to submit myself to him. And then once you do, you get to worship. You get to worship. And our God is worthy of worship. Worship means that we can be excited about this humble God who came as a baby, but ultimately wants to rule our world and rule your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this story of the fulfillment of all that you prophesied and the intricate way that you put together the coming together of history, of rulers deciding to do things in their power, yet that fulfilling the very things that you foretold. And that brings about your, the plan of you saving your world. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the humble way that he comes. Lord, we see Jesus and we see his humility and we're reminded that we're not, we're not humble. We're prideful people. We pray that you would help us. God, we repent. Forgive us of our sin of, of pride. And Lord, help us to be a tenth of the humility that you expressed when you were on the earth. Lord, for those who are here in this room who know the Christmas story, they're very familiar with it, have read it, maybe even memorized it. They, they know the words, but they don't know the God behind the words. I pray, God, that you would break through. As you broke through, as Emmanuel, from eternity into the history of our world, God, would you break through the hearts that are in this room and make yourself known, not just in word, but by your spirit. God, help us to know who you are. Lord, for those who who've read words about Jesus, even can identify with his, his humility, but don't personally know Jesus in the saving of their prideful souls. God, I pray that you would break through, break through our hearts, Lord, that you save us by your grace, that you'd extend your gift of repentance and forgiveness and that you would save us. Lord, it'll take a lifetime for us to be as humble as you but we pray that you would continue working on us and we get to rejoice. We get to worship 
One day we're going to be like you because we're going to see you as you are. We're going to be face to face with Jesus. We worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name.